Hello and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from very different organisations in the worlds of business, charity, the arts and beyond. In each episode, my two guests swap stories about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. I'm James Ashton, a writer, conference speaker and consultant. In this episode, Great Design and the Great Housing Crisis. Alice Black is co-director of the Design Museum, the West London institution dedicated to celebrating the impact of design on everyday life. The relocation to Kensington three years ago tripled space for exhibitions that have featured Stanley Kubrick and Ferrari, and the Design Museum was named European Museum of the Year in 2018. Black began her career in banking, but her experience in museums includes senior roles at the Imperial War Museum and the Churchill Museum and Cabinet War Rooms. She was appointed Deputy Director of the Design Museum in 2007 and Co-Director in 2016. Polly Neat is the Chief Executive of housing charity Shelter, which last year helped 4.7 million people struggling with homelessness and bad housing. Shelter has successfully campaigned to improve tenants' rights and is still pressing for greater provision of social housing. Originally a journalist, Neat joined the charity sector in 2005 at Action for Children, later leading Women's Aid for four years and taking over at Shelter in 2017. I began the conversation asking Alice about what makes a great museum. I think you have to do several things. I think you have to first provide a great day out because people go to a museum to enjoy their leisure time. So you've got to provide the, you know, the amenities, the facilities. Mm-hmm. Then I think you want to move on and uh, get people to feel that they're, they're learning something, they're discovering something, and it can be in your permanent collection, can be part of a talk that they, they attend. Um, and then if you do it really well, you have an emotional connection mm. with your visitors and really that binds you very close to to your visitors because they feel that really they've been on a journey with you that you've spoken to their heads but also um, their spirits and you know they've experienced something that they wouldn't have if they'd stayed at home and watched tv Mm. so and how do you measure that success then if you like because it's not necessarily just getting people to the door is it return visits or degree of engagement it is return visits and I think that's a, a way to quantify it but it is also what we call in the in a, the jargon the net promoter score mm-hmm. so if people are going to recommend you to others and say hey, look I've been to this museum you really must go because there's an incredible exhibit you can actually measure that in terms of how people are prepared to promote you it's between zero and a hundred if mm. you have a high one then that means you're doing a great job and where does it where does this sort of join the pleasure come from for for you sort of leading an organization like this because you've done imperial war museum you've curated um the cabinet war rooms and so on so you you know you've been around this world a little bit I think what I love is the creative element. So every exhibition, every program that we do, we reinvent ourselves. We uncover a new world and particularly in design, we can talk about so many different things because design's really so much around us. So for example, we currently have an exhibition on Stanley Kubrick mm. because he designed world in his films. He, you know, from the credits to the posters to even the technology and the cameras that he used, how in 2001, he imagined our world today. So we can talk about that. We can look at also the work of David Ajay, the architect. That's the other um, exhibition we have on. We can 
talk about fashion, we can talk about transport, uh, we can talk about the future, our next exhibition, we're yeah. going to be going to Mars. So it's the joy of the content. Exactly. You've got, you've got to be in view with that. Polly, I wonder where the, the, the joy comes from with Shelter, if you like. You have always got to believe that these terrible challenges we've got in housing and homelessness can be eradicated over time. Definitely. And I couldn't do my job, I don't think, unless I was a really passionate believer in people's innate desire to make the world better for their fellow citizens Mm. if you can empower them with an idea of how they can do that. So I think thinking about listening to that, that was great. So interesting about what makes a great museum. And I think what makes a great charity is that it really does change stuff. So whether that be at the level of individual lives, whether that be at the level of communities or whether it be at a national scale or even internationally, Mm. pick one of those or do them all. We help individuals, but we also do a lot of campaigning, which Mm -hmm. achieves change. But I think the sign of of a great charity is that it achieves change and it empowers people to believe that change is possible. So yeah, if I didn't believe that, there wouldn't be any joy in my job at all. It could be depressing. So being a great charity leader actually is to believe that and and sort of make it happen. Yes, to believe it, to understand how to make it happen. Yes, to empower, to be able to empower people, I think, to make that change happen is the most important thing. Because I think there's, you know, there's been a lot of you know, please give me the update and you'll get it right and I won't. But they, there seems like there's been steps forward on tenants' rights in, mm. in, in the last few years. Yeah, definitely. But sadly, the, these home, these homelessness numbers, the rough sleeping numbers particularly, there seemed to be a moment, say, I don't know, a decade ago or something, where it was really quite small. It was getting right down there. And then in mm. the last, it's exploded again. Yeah, I think from my point of view, so yes, so first of all, yes, we have made strides in tenants' rights and, and shelter has been a big part of that. And I'm not kind of just saying that. Sure. That is true. I think in terms of rough sleeping, actually, so the government has a new initiative on rough sleeping now. Um, it is an incredibly visible problem and it's the most distressing manifestation of homelessness. Mm. It isn't really the barometer of homelessness though because no it's the tip of an iceberg so we estimate there are nearly 300,000 people homeless in one way or another in England and the rough sleepers very important though they are, are are a small part of that and actually you can have initiatives to get people off the street but unless you prevent people from falling dramatically out of the bottom of the safety net as those people have done yeah. you know you're not actually solving the problem so mm. I'm not sure I would use rough sleeper numbers as a barometer of homelessness and even less would I use it as a mm. barometer of the housing crisis mm. how do we I mean this this might be a long answer I don't I don't sorry know. No, 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 for the next question, Bobby, that's the one. Because I'm just, I want to get into how you have taken on shelter in, in the two years that you've been Nearly there. But, two years, but I yeah. suppose it's helpful to know, you know, I've written a lot on building houses and building homes and promises and numbers and all that sort of thing. Yeah. I wonder from your point of view, how has the UK got housing so wrong for so long? I think it's a combination of things. Um, but I think fundamentally, we have relied on the market to deliver housing for everyone increasingly. We have very little social housing left and we build very little. So we've got 1.2 million people on the social housing waiting list. And last year we built 6,000 new social homes at social rent. So there's a massive gap there. So fundamentally, the solution to the housing crisis, if you want the most, is in the simplest terms. Uh, And if what you're worried about, as I am, is the people worst affected by it, then you need to build dramatically more 
social homes for people, i.e. homes that people genuinely who are on low incomes can afford to live in. And at the moment, there just is nowhere. So it's obvious, you know, you can't solve homelessness without homes. You know, I think the housing crisis increasingly affects everyone. So I think there's a real opportunity now to build political will around understanding the impact that mm. building social housing could mm. have on the whole country, not just on the people living in it, but on the whole of our society. And of course, you know, the housing crisis affects everyone. But my sort of mantra is, you know, shelter wasn't founded because my kids can't afford to buy a home in London tragic though that may be sure that's not why i'm here no i'm here for the people who have nowhere safe to live yeah and is this what you have to do do you think a big challenge for the design museum is really show where design can knit together with real world problems this is not just about admiring you know lovely ornaments in your facility in kensington i know you do a lot for example with entrepreneurs and small business absolutely um design is about the everyday because actually everything that uh, you know man-made object has been designed and design is mostly concerned with creating objects products uh, interfaces that solve yeah. user problems. So it's not a speculation on life. It's actually the activity of design mm. is uh, giving shape to an innovation, to a new product that solves a problem. Alice, you, you've been involved at the Design Museum since 07. There's kind of been two pieces of work, if you like. I'll boil it down to just two pieces of work. I mean, the first one really is you were closely involved. You led this relocation of Design Museum from Tower Bridge to Kensington. £82 million project. You had to raise a lot of that money going through the recession. Then we'll get on to the second piece later, but there are always going to be commercial challenges with, with museums. And, and uh, how did you go out and find that money at that, at that particular time? It was uh, not a small challenge because, mm. as you rightly say, when we started fundraising and also sharing our vision of what a new design museum could be, mm. it was 2008, the financial crash had happened and people just looked at us with slightly puzzled eyes. Uh -huh. But we really persevered because I think we were convinced of the ultimate purpose of mm. uh, the design museum to make design visible. So first of all, we had to be very clear what our vision was and why the world needed a new design museum. And we spent quite a bit of time thinking about this and being clear and briefing the team internally so that we could then go out and be mm. very consistent in our messaging. We also had the incredible luck to uh, find amazing partners. First of all, there were the borough of Kensington and Chelsea. They yep. had this site for redevelopment. There was a great two-star listed building in the middle of it. No one wanted to it's take it start. on. a great start. Yes. And it, it, had, um, it had a leaking roof. Um, okay. It was the former Commonwealth Institute. Um, it had been a problematic building for, for some time. It had been empty for 10 years. And they were really desperate to find a new owner to reopen it mm. to the building and then there was a property developer who wanted to acquire the site and build residential on it so it was a meeting of minds there uh, with the design museum and we structured a partnership to enable the museum to take on the building the yeah. developer did a big chunk of the refurbishment of the structure we did all the inside and also we received a long-term lease of the museum. Did now, you ever think, so when you, when you were approached to do that, 
I mean, you have a background in banking, so you know your way around the numbers, but do mm. you ever think, crikey, this just can't be done? If I'm completely honest, I thought it was a pipe dream. And for <laughs> probably half the time, you know, of the development thinking, how are we going to raise all this money? How are we going to work with property developer yeah. and then the city? They all have their own goals and objectives. The developers got a lot of money and wants to develop and then get out. Of course, yeah. We've got no money and mm. we're in for the very long run. We're a charity as well. Mm. How, so, yes, for a long time. But I was so confused convinced that yeah. this project had leg they kept me going Polly to, to jump to when you joined Shelter 2017 you've done two years I think there was quite a big consultation you sort of wanted to refresh what the mission was and, and it's looking on your website now it's pretty clear there's two or three prongs everyone knows what you do but did you feel you needed to refresh that when you came in and sort of focus it a bit more so just before I joined Shelter the Grenfell Tower fire happened mm. And it was just an incredibly distressing thing that happened. And I felt an enormous sense of responsibility to... And I think you said, actually, you, you could see it from your I could. house. And I, I think you've also said house. some of your daughter's friends were yeah. involved. So, um, yes, yeah, some girls from my daughter's school lived in the tower. And it really gave me... Um, I guess I was still at Women's Aid at that time. I used mm. to run... women. That was my previous job, Women's Aid. I ran Women's Aid, the domestic violence charity. So I, I guess I've never kind of felt such a sense of my own privilege as standing in my nice house in West London watching that tower burn. Mm. It was really an incredible I'll never forget it it mm. was a and knowing that I was about to take on this organization and Shelter's focus recently before then hadn't really been on I guess the development of social housing specifically so it hadn't really been on it had been much more generally around house building and the need to build more homes for everyone and I did feel very strongly that we needed to focus our attention anyway but particularly in the aftermath of Grenfell to the people who really are becoming left behind in our communities mm. and who are most badly affected by the housing crisis. So I came to Shelter with a very passionate belief that that's what we needed to do and luckily, the staff at Shelter, so we've got nearly 1,300 employees, and there was a real feeling among them as well that in order to try to make something out of this terrible catastrophe that had mm. happened, we really did need to focus on more specifically on, I guess, the people kind of worst affected. Mm. So I ran... So they fell behind, so they fell, in, they fell behind what you wanted to they do, really which is did. handy. Yeah, it was. Yeah, <laughs> it was lucky. But I don't think it's at all surprising either because I think people who work at Shelter, like me, have come into it because we feel a sense of responsibility to do something for people who are, as I say, really increasingly being left behind. So I ran a big consultation exercise. It was the biggest internal consultation Shelter had ever done. I really wanted to make sure that everybody was going to be 100% behind the new strategy and the focus of the organisation. I don't know some charities have sort of almost a franchise model or something, but actually for having sort of directly employed mm. staff, that's quite a big number. I mean, I know you'd have people who are actually helping, they're on the helpline or they're helping 
people who Directly, have bad yeah. housing face to face, but also you've got the people in the shops as well. So it's quite yeah. a diverse staff you're it dealing is. with. It is. It's a very diverse group. And I was really proud of the consultation because every single person employed by Shelter had the opportunity to be in a face to face meeting to discuss how we should express the organisation's purpose mm. going forward and what the key outcomes should be that we should be seeking to achieve. So does that make you a good listener then as a leader? I hope so. That would certainly be my ambition. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I'm naturally quite an extrovert, quite talkative, and somebody who likes to do things very quickly. So I'm very conscious of the need mm. to be a good listener mm. and to make sure that I keep a sense of pace, mm. but also make sure that I do hear what people are saying to me as we're going along. Mm. Yeah. Alice, so to split the two tasks, if you like, in half, I mean, you got the money, you built this wonderful institution, it opened in November 2016, and then your reward, I suppose, if you like, if we can call it that, you're, you're then promoted, you're now so co-director of the Design Museum with Diane Sujic. And so I'm interested in how that works because, well, co it can be a challenge. How do you make it work? Well, I make it work with Dan because we've been working together for 11 and a half years. Mm. So I know him so well, he knows me. And I think we've developed a sort of symbiotic way of leading the organisation. We have very um, complementary uh, skill set, experience and profile. And I think we respect each other a lot. So he comes in with a huge amount of design expertise and architecture expertise. Originally, I was brought in because I had the management piece. Mm. We've sort of grown together. He's, you know, really, he's got a good sense of situation of people. Um, and I've really developed my design knowledge. So I think we work together by also being a united front. And I think it's important when you share the leadership of an organisation. Does ever anybody, uh, people try to sort of come between you, if you like? Will they say, will they go to Dan and say, well, well, Alice said do it this way or something. I mean, that doesn't work, does it? It, it wouldn't. And I don't <laughs> think anyone's ever done that because I think it's also evident that there is that strong relationship between the two of us. And I don't think anyone would think of doing that. Polly, your skills, obviously, uh, it's good to see a former journalist um, <laughs> do something useful for a change. Um, but that, that's a little while ago. And obviously, you did the, your way into charities was through communications. I mean, do you think it's no surprise that the communicator is the CEO now because so much of, of Shelter's role is actually get the message out and campaign? Yeah, so Shelter is a campaigning organisation, mm. so it is important. It'd be difficult to lead Shelter if you were somebody who really doesn't want to do media interviews or public speaking or anything like that. I think that would be a problem. But I don't think mine is necessarily the best skill set for the job. I think there'd be people from a whole range of backgrounds could do the job. And I know brilliant charity leaders from a very wide range of different backgrounds actually including the direct delivery of services and that's the bit of background that I don't have and that I've worked very hard to try to have as good a knowledge as possible of how you work with people who are having or have had very very difficult and traumatic experiences because those are kind of the two sides of the charity it's the helping and the campaigning on that's behalf right. of those people really yeah totally yeah yeah that's right okay I suppose one front line is talking to the media and so on. The other front line is being absolutely there, you know, in the room with someone who, who needs help. And I guess you need to make sure that you're connected both ways. Yeah, so I try to spend as much time as possible in our frontline services. I sit in on meetings between our staff mm. and our clients quite 
often. And I've learned a lot about what we would call kind of in the jargon service delivery mm. um, through other jobs that I've had as well. So I guess it's not something that I can do myself professionally mm. and I wouldn't remotely pretend to be able to do that. But it is definitely something that I've worked very hard at understanding. I mean, the most important to me, and I'm always I'm asked this a lot, what's the most important quality for a leader? And to me, it's self-knowledge. That is it. Mm. Self-knowledge is pretty much the skill set, I think. That you don't know all of it, that, that actually there are other people yeah. and you've got to be aware of your own restrictions. Understanding your strengths yeah. and weaknesses and making sure that you have people. So our director of services at Shelter is incredibly important to me. Mm. That's a very key post. And it's probably even more of a key post than it would be if I myself mm. had a services background. What is? I noticed the number, I think it's 4.7 million people that you helped last year. So if you're there listening into the helpline, or others I mean what what is the typical call what's the most common thing that people will get in touch about oh god that's so hard to say I think there are two well the most common cause of homelessness is eviction from a private tenancy hmm. so I guess certainly one of the most common issues that we get is people who are either concerned that they might be evicted or are going to be evicted mm. and are therefore going to become homeless and then are very well aware that actually when you become homeless there's nothing there so you know we can expect that if one of us god forbid walks out of here and gets hit by a car we will be picked up by somebody and we'll be taken to a world-class hospital and we'll mm. get the best care you mm. can have and it doesn't matter if we can pay for it or not well mm. if you become homeless that is not the case at all mm. you will not get world-class response often you won't get any response. there's no net there's no net mm. part of the reason i joined shelter is when i worked at women's aid i met frequently women who were literally prepared to risk their lives every day rather than make themselves and their children homeless mm. because they knew that if they did that there would be nothing mm. there and the, the impact that I saw on women and their children experiencing domestic violence was what really made me realise that housing and particularly the provision of social housing, it is the key domestic challenge that we face as a country. Mm. Alice, tell me about the there's a commercial challenge and the challenge is ongoing for Design Museum. I think 2% of your support comes from government. So there is that ongoing conversation, you know, getting sponsors on board and so on. How easy is that in this climate? It's not easy. And uh, I'd say I spend at least half of my time thinking about those money issues. Where can we find support to run yeah. all the activities that we run from all the learning activity and skills training that we do to putting on the shows. Mm. So I try to make the case to government a lot about why support for, for Design Museum matters. Mm. Um, what, Britain is incredibly successful at design. We export it around the world. Mm. I think the value of our design export is in the region of £48 billion. Pounds. Mm. So this is because we've been training amazing designers and architects and then they live here. Most uh, will go on to create their own businesses. Mm. 
and then, you know, export and, and create value for the country. Who's going to inspire that next generation of architects, mm. creators, innovators? Because currently the school system has uh, changed. The curriculum really is focusing on English, math, uh, with the EBAC. So all the arts and design subjects have been sidelined. And we're seeing that there's fewer and fewer applications go to go to university to study design yeah. subjects. So we need to redress that. We need to continue to talk about design to inspire these next creators because it's good for the country or else it becomes ever decreasing circles if you like yeah but where do you where do you draw the line i mean there's a real there's been a real sort of debate over the last couple of years in arts about where do you take the money from which organizations I, you know i'm going to ask you about so you know last year artists came into the museum they they took their art off your walls because they found out that you hosted a drinks party for, for a defense company you know, and I saw your response to that. It's a debate, but institutions like yours have to fund themselves somehow. Absolutely. It's it's a very crucial debate. And I think a lot of museums and charities are struggling with this. There are issues around, you know, then the pharmaceutical industry. And, you know, we've heard a lot about the opioid crisis. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are fossil fuels. So I think um, it's it's a live issue. I think we've, we've done a lot of soul searching and and reflecting i think what we have to be very clear is what uh, what is our mission our mission is uh, to highlight the impact of design mm. and to show that design improves lives so this is what we're here to do so we're we're a campaigning organization but for design i think we have to be mindful of a very different sentiment in our audiences and mm. uh, apply a degree of scrutiny and we do that with our board of trustees with our directors to consider each instances on a case-by-case basis. I guess the other thing as well is that, that balance between the commercial and the cultural, you know, you were always going to get people through the door to look at a wonderful exhibition of Ferrari as you did a little while ago, but I guess you have to balance that against what's the important designer we should showcase that might not get as many people there. Absolutely. And I think that's what we try and do. We try and um, connect with our audiences through their interests and their interests can be very far, very wide. So from, you know, also lovely dresses, we had a very successful exhibition on Azedine Alaya, the couturier. So people want to have an aesthetic experience and enjoy the visions of beauty. But we also have exhibitions that really deliver a hard mm. punch on, on what design is, what design does. And I'm thinking here about our Beasley Designs of the Year exhibition. Mm. Every year we look at the most innovative products and architecture projects and so on across the last 12 months. And that gives us a very mm. good sense of socially what's happening. Yeah. So there's been a lot of work happening on new materials, for mm. example. We, we can't keep using the resources of our planet at the pace we've been doing. Right. But there are new materials coming on stream how do we make those more widely used? And mm. um, how do we address the migrant crisis? You know, how do we give better support infrastructure for those migrants coming into the camps? What exists already? What design solutions can we find? So through this exhibition, we really tackle these important mm. projects. 
Polly, on your f- fundraising point of view, I mean, Shelter has been you know, successful in the last few years. I think he's about £70 million is income. Some of that's through donations. And then you have a you have a network of about 90 shops. So that's sort of a good route as well. I mean, d- are you doing the same as uh, Alice? Do you, do you find that you're spending a lot of time on worrying and thinking about how do we get the money in the door? Or, do, or is someone else to look after that in your organisation? Well, so I do have a director of income generation and, ah, quite, and yeah. quite a big fundraising team. But... You know, the funding of the organisation is something that I continually have to pay attention to. And a lot of the relationship building behind that is up to me to do. So I try to build relationships with people who might be interested in supporting shelter, whether they be corporates, you know, individuals, etc. I don't know about worrying about it. And I don't really worry about anything. Nothing keeps me awake at night. I'm not a worrier at all to be honest. Really? That's very interesting. So I don't really worry about it, no. And and actually, having come from a much more financially precarious organisation mm. where fundraising was a kind of continual mending of the bucket rather than trying to kind of fill the bucket up a little bit more, mm. which is where we are at Shelter, yeah. very fortunately. So I wouldn't say I worry about it, no. but it's incredibly important and we need to expand the work that we're doing and we need money in order to do that. And, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say you don't worry about anything, you sleep well at night. Because I, I, I have one question down here that maybe less in this role than in Women's Aid. I mean, there must be some very, very tough things that you, you know, encountered on a daily basis. I, I mm. wondered how you tuned out from that. And the other point is, I mean, as a leader, you really put yourself out there on Twitter and other places and you've had some load of abuse Mm. fired your way so are you saying you really can just sort of shake all that off and go home and and have a cup of tea and things I mean I'm not everyone's cup of tea and I'm cool with that you know I'm a feminist I'm very much vocal as being a feminist that isn't popular with everybody Um, I understand that and you know I accept it so I still think it's really important and actually I think it's it's really important to have a kind of vocal feminist Mm. leading an organization that isn't pigeonholed as a women's organization Mm. so that certainly doesn't bother me i am quite careful about what i share and who i identify in social media because i have had uh problems definitely that's true so that's that in terms of the the impact of the experiences that we're dealing with as an organization so the the kind of lived experiences of the people who come to shelter I don't try and shut that off. I almost try and let it in more in a way because I think in a chief executive role, there's a danger of becoming a bit distant from that. Mm. So it's not that I need to tune it out. Mm. It's that I, I think I need to consciously tune it in. And I really want people's experience, the experiences of the people we help to be the thing that drives shelter. So we should be doing what those people need and we should be campaigning on the solutions that really will change the world for those people. It doesn't matter if they're not the things that are going to immediately make whoever our next prime minister is stay awake at night sure. it's our job to make that person stay awake at night because of the housing crisis but it's interesting you have to you you have to be immersed in that so you can get it right back to the top of the organization make sure all your people know about it and the 3,000 and odd volunteers and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And people outside shelter. So a big part of my job is trying to 
communicate the urgency of the issues that we're working on as best I possibly can. And that's really important. Alice, what is your style of leadership? You you certainly, in your annual report, you make a big thing about the uh, huge number of Twitter followers. So there is a real community. I think I find it really interesting, that question, because so I went to business school and so mm. in business school, you, you learn about management style. And I remember, actually, there was this um, this course about organizational structure then, and it compared characters of Asterix and Obelix <gasps> to different kinds of leader. Um, the Druid being the one that uh, sort of federates everyone by their um, hate of him, the, the bard, actually, you know, the the yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need that sort of person that everyone hates in an organization and so on. Um, so so you <laughs> <That's> learn. <weird. laughs> I can't, I can't. Mm. It sort of, it can unite an organization around a common pet hate. Actually, and we do you have, bind yeah. people together. We in, do have an en- a, a man, one of our mantras. So we have change mantras at the moment at Shelter. And one of them is our enemy is social injustice. So that's yeah. really true, actually. So you, you have to have to, that yeah. common enemy and very clearly identified. But so, so you know, you learn it like this and then you, uh, obviously, you have your own personality and you hone it through your experience. I think my style is to be quite consensual. I, you know, with what you said earlier, Polly, that degree of self-awareness and realising that you don't have all the solution, you don't know it all, but that you want to build around you a team that you have a lot of trust with and you empower them and you use them really to to develop the Mm. right solution. So I like to bounce ideas off people and, you know, and I also appreciate so you mentioned twitter and and all of our social media i'm aware of it i use it a little bit but it's clear i'm not in that generation for whom it's like second you know the way of living is just a way of breathing and relating to people so the team at the museum that does all the social media is in their 20s and I largely let them get on with it because they do it incredibly That's well. self-awareness then, you're not coming across and saying, I, I, hi kids, I'm the social media expert. Yes, <laughs> and or, or, you know, I really listen because they, they work with it all the time, they have that skills, so I might have a slightly different view and different, um, some suggestions as to how we might angle it differently, but I, you know, and I trust the people in the organisation so I, I value working with people and what about what Polly says about sort of unapologetically you know it's great to have um, you know strong female leaders of you know of organizations I mean did you feel a bit of that when you stepped up to be co-director did you feel we can sort of get a bit more balance in how this the the, the sort of outlook of design museum is now I think what I bring is a a lot, I'm, I hope, a lot of that relatability. Mm. I like to be out there, to be talking to the staff and even to the volunteers on the front line. We have some lovely volunteers at the museum who welcome our visitors and just make it an, a, an open, inclusive, approachable organisation. And I think it, it can be a, a female trait. Mm. And that's certainly a way that I try to, to behave so that, you know, you, you can then develop that trusted relationship with a, with a team. Polly, you talked about the sort of skills that you had and the skills you needed to develop. I mean, since, you, since you've been in the charity world, are there mentors, are there people who, who, you, who you can sort of lean on and sort of give you advice as to how you, you develop? Oh, absolutely. I'm really dependent on my networks for 
advice, for ideas, things I can copy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely. And yeah, that's incredibly important to me. Such as who? I mean, are they peers from other charities or yeah. corporations or things? So I have a network of other charity chief executives who I really admire for lots of different reasons. And I am quite dependent on that network. I also have a mentor that I to have regular mentoring sessions um, and she's brilliant and really 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 helpful and also you know I'm very influenced by people that I've worked with or for in previous jobs so my first job in the charity sector was with Action for Children and the Claire Tickell, Dame Claire Tickell, who was my boss who was the CEO then um, she influenced me an enormous amount and people that I worked for when I was a journalist have influenced me enormously as well so I am try and be as open as possible to the idea that there's a better way of doing things there's a better idea than my last idea is one of the challenges you you've got I mean the whole the world of if you like campaigning has been kind of energized and changed over the last almost feels like the last three years I mean there's never a weekend goes by now when there aren't marches in London about whether it's Brexit or or Trump or something and then you see all these sort of activities change.org and social media and so on I mean do you have to you can't necessarily tell people what to campaign for in the in the way that charities might have done a generation ago. I think some of the leadership role of charities is still important in campaigning. I think the kind of certainly at Shelter, you know, we are trusted to provide accurate information about the housing crisis for people who are worried about it. Um, and I think that is very important and it is a leadership role that we need to take very seriously. I also think that if you really want to get change, you need a movement and you need public opinion to create the space for the people who actually have the power to act in a different way. So with housing, really, the direction of policy of the last of my adult life needs to change radically. That's an enormous shift. So we need to be working with the people who can make that shift, as in the decision makers, but the shift absolutely won't happen without a shift in public understanding Mm. and public opinion. And with that, I think charities need to be a lot more generous with their assets, a lot less worried about kind of owning and branding things. You know, if somebody wants to start an extinction rebellion tomorrow to get a social housing built, I am there to tell you about it. You know what I mean? And the fact that whether they call it and brand it with shelter or not, I don't care. I think we have to be... We have to be a bit more relaxed about the way in which change happens now mm. um, and people do create their own movements. And we can, and charities can have a relationship with that. So feminism is a brilliant example. So feminism has had a massive resurgence, I think, in recent years because a lot of young women have rediscovered feminism and are communicating about it in very different ways, mm. often using social media. So things like hashtag everyday sexism and then more recently Me Too have had an enormous impact and I and I think have shifted. So I think Me Too has actually shifted what is acceptable behaviour. There's, there's even a new generation of for girls. The, the, the Spice Girls have come back and they are seen, seen as these sort of wise, sort of senior... Um, <laughs> I know. You know. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 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 
I know. But the point it's is, really your, point, your point about keeping... They're younger than me, though. Your, your, <laughs> it's almost like keeping the government honest. One of the roles that, that Shelter plays is keeping track of those statistics that yes. we talked about, about the number of, of families in temporary households, the number yeah. of people it's under threat. It's important. Yeah. It's important. And we, and we do need to step up and speak truth to power all the time. So whatever the concern is of the person in the street... We do have a responsibility to be truthful, say what we believe and say it to the people that can do something about it, whether they like it or not. Alice, very briefly on on sort of your career, Imperial War Museum and and the War Rooms, strategic roles there, there's curator roles there. When was it that you thought, you know, I'd like to be the boss? I've always been quite ambitious. Mm. And I mean, I think it's interesting how you can um, create the narrative of your own history and say, and I did this and then I did that. And, you know, it was all uh, with a view it was to all being... Yeah, of course. Um, but things <laughs> happened with a, a bit more um, accident, uh, yeah. you know, a nature about it. But I think from early on, I knew I wanted to lead an organisation. I, you know, and... The experience I had at Imperial War Museum, where first I started doing strategy and then I ran the site of the cabinet war rooms on a day-to-day basis. So understanding people at the till, what they do, the finances of it and you know the marketing and creating exhibitions. Mm. So that really rounded the piece so that when the design museum job came... I looked at it and it was a deputy director role at the time. And I, well, actually, I did what women often do. I looked at the job description. I said, I can do this. I can do this. Oh, I can't do that piece. <laughs> I haven't done that piece. The fundraising. No, no, no. Um, shame. I won't go for it. And I was very lucky that my husband looked at me and said, you go for it. That's a great job. Yeah. And you're totally able to do it. And I think that's a piece of advice that I would give and that I do give to young women. This this sort of self-censorship of, oh, I can't do this. Oh, I haven't got the skills. This is something that we have to combat on every day. We have to put ourselves forward. And I think from, from that point on, any time that I've been offered an opportunity, that made me scared. So... For example, talking on a podcast like today or doing live interview when we had the Hope to Nope uh, event, you know, at some point it would have panicked me. But mm. I just decided you have to go for it, put yourself out there because this is how you grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a very interesting conversation and, and, and it's great you both did it because this is the first time. It's only episode eight, but it's the first time I've got two female leaders together, which I'm really pleased or, uh, cool. pleased about. So Polly Neat from Shelter and Alice Black from the Design Museum, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to season one of Leading with me, James Ashton. These podcasts are being released weekly. Please subscribe so you don't miss the latest one. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please follow us on Twitter at LeadingPod and rate and review. Listener.